0: But I don't want us to lose sight of the things that we love about this community and the things we love about this community, I hope, don't just include the buildings and such, it's that sense of community we all had and that sense of civility and that sense of can-do spirit that I think has been the hallmark of Oregon and Portland in particular for generations.
1: The Portland 50 podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. Our guest this week is Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. In this episode, we talk about his Oregon roots out on the coast as well as here in town, his path to public service, and we might even talk about his favorite hike in the Columbia River Gorge. We also talk about the current state of Portland and how he envisions it growing. You and I have crossed paths a couple of times, most of the time where we're sharing a stage. Um, one was at the tree lighting this that's past right. winter. That was fun. Um, but before that was at the AIDS walk. Hmm? I think it was 2016 because you were mayor elect. It was, uh, yeah, it was 2016.
0: That's yeah. correct.
1: You had that, kind. Of, I don't know if you would, you would describe it as that uncomfortable period where you were the incoming mayor because you had won the primary by more than
0: 50%. Then you had to wait
1: like six months, right? Yeah, that's right.
0: It, it was what I'd call an awkward pause.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, you were there uh, representing, and I was I was impressed by that because you didn't have to be there, but as the mayor-elect, you were choosing to be out in the
0: community and supporting a great cause. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've done the AIDS walk a bunch of times. It's, it is a great cause, and uh, not only is it a good cause for a, an important group of people, it's a heck of a lot of fun.
1: It was one of those occasions, though, where I realized that um, maybe as an elected person here in Portland... Do you carry different pairs of shoes in your in your on your person, like Adidas or Nike, just in case you show up and it's an
0: Adidas-sponsored event? And you're like, oh, I need to change my shoes. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, there's no end to the considerations, but. Um you know, I, I think mostly people understand that, that in Portland they want people to be genuine, but I probably wouldn't show up at Nike headquarters wearing Adidas. Right. No. I, I also like to get home at the end of the day.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, I think I showed up to it because I was emceeing that event, and the guy who had brought me in. He's, he walked up to me and he's like, oh thank goodness I forgot to tell you this is a big Nike thing.
0: I want to make sure you wore Nikes and I'm yeah, like he set, I, he set you up but yeah I, I always try to uh, to honor the sponsor if people are going to step forward and sponsor an important event in the community yeah. then I definitely want to support them. And how, how lucky are we that we not only have Nike and
1: Adidas here just the way, when it comes to outdoor gear I mean they' it's just never ending here in,
0: in Portland. This is ground zero. You know, you can you can uh, throw a stone in any direction, and you're going to find a major manufacturer of outdoor apparel, uh, uh, shoes, climbing gear, rain gear. You name it, we've got it all here. And it's it's not just the big names. Everybody thinks of, of Nike and Adidas and Under Armour, uh, but we also have just a huge number of smaller and emerging brands. Yeah. I think that's what makes the environment really so cool. there's there's a lot of innovation going on here
1: and a lot of times those are from people who got their start in those those bigger bigger companies and then have set out on their own. I think that's really what makes Portland special is you have this environment of creativity
0: and then people branching out on their own. Yeah, it makes it really cool, but it's also an important economic development strategy. I mean, this is what we call a cluster strategy, right? If you get a critical mass of a certain type of company locating here, a certain type of employer, that generates other innovative startups and creates more ideas and attracts even more people from that industry to the area. So there really is a strategy here in terms of developing economic clusters, and the outdoor apparel one is certainly one of the biggest...
1: I want to I get into kind of what the future of Portland looks like for you as the mayor and as somebody who's born and raised here. But before I get to that, I want to start with the fact that you're sixth generation Oregonian. That's correct. And somebody had told me that your family
0: helped establish the little town of Wheeler out on the coast. Is that true? Yeah, it's true. My, my great grandfather had a sawmill. In Wheeler, Oregon. Mm-hmm. So if you just if you're driving through Wheeler and it only takes about thirty right, seconds, right? You blink and you miss it. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a cool little town. It really is. It's a great town. The people there are fantastic. But as you're there, if you look to the waterfront, right where the waterfront is on the south side of town, used to be where the sawmill actually was located. And I've got some great old photographs of what it used to look like. But to uh, to imagine what it would have been. Like back then in the early 1900s, it was totally isolated, totally cut off from the rest of the world, except by rail. Right. And that rail, of course, was used to move timber back and forth. But um, yeah, I'm proud of that that history. Is there still any Is there still any family property there? Or? No, no, we have no family property there whatsoever. A number of years ago, when I was state treasurer, I was asked to come out for the anniversary of uh, the town. And it really was fun. So I, I got to meet the people who really have lived their whole lives there, who've made that community what it is. And uh, to have that opportunity to share my family's legacy with them and share some remembrances that I've had of my family. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, it was really special that they did it, and I felt really privileged that they even asked me to attend. It's a great town, great people. They have a very bright future ahead of them.
1: There's a there's a new restaurant there within the past, I think, maybe year. I don't know if you've been out there that recently. The Salmonberry Saloon. I've heard about it. Oh, I you need to check it there, out. But it, it's on the list. Yeah. I've heard it's really great. Yeah, yeah, it was it was actually, I think the, the main chef there came out of Portland, because we're actually seeing that trend where the food scene here in Portland has gotten so big.
0: Some people are looking for kind of they want to slow it down a little bit, so they're heading to the coast. yeah, oh, yeah, it's it, and it's right on the bay, right? the yeah. restaurant. yep. Um, yeah, you know my my wife and daughter and I go to the coast all the time. it's it's the closest you can go and feel like you're in a completely different environment, a different world. I love nature, I love the outdoors. And it doesn't matter what time of year it is. There, There is always somewhere you can go, either a promontory overlooking the crashing waves or going up into the hills and seeing old-growth forest, climbing up onto the tops of peaks and being able to see just endless dramatic views that are different every time you get there. Um, I love that place. And it's one of the few places where I can actually sleep all night. I mean, my stress level, the minute I get out, the salt air sort of descends upon me. Uh, my stress level just disappears. I love the Oregon coast. It's it's just such a great area.
1: And it's, it, it, we're so close to it. That's, what, that's yeah. the, the closeness of the coast and, uh, of course, to the mountains. I mean, Portland's perfect in
0: that way. It, it is perfect in that way. And, um, you know, I, I, I tell people if they move here from somewhere else and they struggle with the weather – Go to the coast. Go to the mountains. Right. Get involved in in winter sports. Rent some snowshoes. Uh, check it out. Go up to Timberline Lodge and throw some snowballs around. Whatever. Uh, Learned to cross country ski. That's a that's a part of our recreational environment that I think really is not emphasized enough. Mm-hmm. We are the 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 coast gets a lot of the attention, but the mountains right there and it's spectacular.
1: Um, when I was looking over your bio, something stood out to me because you do something that I do. My wife makes fun of me for it, but I think for you as a public servant, it makes way more sense than for me as a DJ. But I
0: I'm very proud of it the fact that we're both Eagle Scouts. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, I, I appreciate you raising that. Um, I still keep my Eagle, uh, the plaque that yeah. they give you when you become an Eagle Scout. Mm-hmm. I still keep that in my office. Who was the, the president that signed it? So it was actually Ronald Reagan okay. who signed mine. I, I uh, received my Eagle in 1980 and uh, President Reagan was a new president at the time and he signed my Eagle Scout award. Um. But it meant something to me then, and it means something to me now. I I get people, uh, mostly parents, sometimes grandparents, who send me letters or send me an email asking, would I send a thank you letter, a congratulatory letter uh, to uh, their child? congratulating them on becoming an Eagle Scout and mm-hmm. they never turn those requests down. I don't care if they're from Portland. I don't care if they're from the Jordan Valley. I don't care if they're from Medford, but if a young person goes through all of those steps and shows that level of commitment and now the Eagle Scout, by the way, it's a lot harder to get when, than right. when you and I were kids yeah, yeah, because there's a huge, you know, there was a public service component back then, yeah. but it's much bigger now that you have to demonstrate much more commitment to the community. And, um, I just hand it to young people. They're they're torn in so many different directions. They have so many activities. Uh, in many ways, they're so freaked out about having the perfect resume for college admissions uh, that when I see somebody who over a period of many years at that age has really committed to community, that's something worth shouting out. That's something worth supporting you remember what your uh, e- Eagle Project was? I I'm do. Probably, you probably can't forget it. No, I, I, I'll i never forget it. And I had a lot of fun doing it. I helped the William Temple House create their first food pantry. Oh. And so I brought in a bunch of my friends from high school. And what we found when we got there was a large stack of canned goods on the floor of what appeared to be a storage area or some sort. It, it wasn't really a garage, but maybe it had, had been a carriage house or something in previous years. And uh, we brought... Uh, order to the chaos if you will yeah and it was a very very positive experience and and the folks who i brought in to help me with the project actually were not in any way involved in the scouts in fact a number of them were young girls who you know young women who right. who were in my class and uh you know not only did we do something that was really worthwhile for A population, our community, who desperately needed the help. We had a great time. It was a blast. It was a lot of fun, and we enjoyed working with the people at the house who who uh, had dedicated the best years of their lives to public service as well.
1: When you were uh, at that age, uh, because your you know your schooling takes you through Columbia, or actually starts in Stanford, then Columbia, then Harvard. um, Did did you see yourself as that Eagle Scout, the young Ted Wheeler, that eventually that politics, or I should say, public
0: service? Was your future, is that what you were looking at? No, I I decidedly wasn't looking at that. I'll tell you exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, First of all, I wanted to be an airline pilot. Okay. Then I wanted to be a space shuttle pilot. And from there, I wanted to go into the Navy. And it turned out I had terrible eyes. And back then, if you had terrible eyes, you weren't going to be an airline pilot, and you certainly weren't going to be a space shuttle pilot. So instead, I went into business. And uh, my first foray into business um, was actually being the owner and operator of a video store, and it was a colossal disaster. I mean, I could tell you that the, the the short, funny story is that at some point I had to make a decision. Do we buy an inventory that is Mm VHS-oriented or Betamax-oriented? Those were uh, tough times back then. Yeah, but here's for anybody who's feeling badly that they didn't go to business school, I'll tell you what, if you went to business school, you chose the wrong product because you had Sony backing Betamax. They were the best technology company in the world by far at the time. They had the distribution channels. They had all of the audio files and video files saying this is the best product. And they had the hardware. So where do you think the market went? It went to VHS. So I became the owner of what was probably the largest collection of Betamax tapes (laughs) in the entire San Francisco Bay Area as a result of having chosen very, very poorly. And that failure uh, was something that taught me more than I ever learned in business school or graduate school or anywhere else. It, It really made me question the assumptions. Who are they? You know, the, the proverbial they mm. that we always listen to versus who are the customers, who is the market, and what are they saying? And that's a skill set that I hope I've brought to me in politics where uh, I try to de-emphasize the loudest voices or those that are most shocking or have the most followers on, on Twitter or Facebook and instead really think about who am I listening to and who should I be listening to as I make decisions about policy for the city of Portland.
1: When you uh, ultimately decided to to go a public service route, what was kind of the catalyst for that? Because it started at, at the county. Was it the county kind of your first foray No, into it? it
0: happened many years before then. Uh, ironically, since we were just talking about business school, it happened there. Uh, in order to complete my uh, requirements at business school, I needed a few more credits. Mm-hmm. And there was a class that looked like a true fluff class. And I had a very heavy load of very, very technical financial classes. They're, they're very quantitative. And I needed something else to fill my schedule. So I picked this new class that had never been taught before called Nonprofit Management. Okay. Now, I was thinking, what the heck is Nonprofit Management? This was new back then. Right. This was a new concept to apply the principles of business management and leadership to the nonprofit and philanthropic sector. It was an emerging idea. And I took the class, and I was far more attracted to it than I realized I'd be. And you had to do a project, a hands-on project. And for me, the question I wanted to answer was why in New York City, why at Columbia University, one of the wealthiest institutions in the world, mm-hmm. were there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mostly men, mostly men of color, lined up. Head to to foot all the way around the university every single night, homeless people living on the air vents coming out of the university to keep themselves warm so they wouldn't freeze to death in the New York winter. And so in the tradition of capitalism, I paid them a buck for their story. And uh, I should have paid them 10. I should have paid them 100 for their stories because it, it, for me, was an epiphany To a person, they were willing to talk to me. To a person, they were willing to sit down and share their stories. To a person... They shared stories of having been incarcerated, and now they couldn't get a job. Now they couldn't get access to housing. Many of them shared stories of addiction to, to various substance. Others said, hey, you know, I've, I've had a mental health issue my entire life, and nobody's ever bothered to identify it. Nobody's ever bothered to help me. The only people who listen to me are the people who are on my right and the people who are on my left on these grates." Mm-hmm. And that was a wake-up call for me. I I could have gone off and sold underarm deodorant to the masses, and I would have been really good at it. I have no doubt about that. But at the end of the day, it wasn't fulfilling. It didn't mean anything to me. There was no value associated. There was no larger purpose. And I wanted to really help improve our society. And for me, it was really a sense of justice. I felt that those young men lying on the street all the way around Columbia University, running the risk of freezing to death in the winter, many of whom wanted to work, many of whom deserved to work but couldn't get access because back then, any conviction, no matter how far ago, you were done. You were right. toast. Um, I decided I could bring what I had, bring bring my skill set to the table. So I, I did a radical shift in career planning. Uh, I went to the Kennedy School of Government instead of taking a job on Wall Street. I turned down a bunch of jobs on Wall Street. And believe you me, I really upset a number of my classmates because typically those firms would give one maybe two-job offer per graduate program, and right. I got those offers, and I turned them down so I could go and study public policy and try and figure out, how do we bring these same principles and practices and idea to the table to solve these broader, I think more compelling and more pressing and more urgent issues of our society? I still didn't think I was going to run for public office at that point, but obviously eventually... Uh, I realized that that was a path for me. It was a viable path, and it's one that that I've pursued since. So the idea might have been more at that point
1: going into the nonprofit world, um, but but then maybe realizing you can affect change maybe a little quicker by being in, in the public in the public realm. You
0: know, it's it, I I have this thing. I don't know if it holds me back or if it propels me forward. I have. You know, my superpower, if you will, in the the current parlance, my superpower is I realize how short life is, and my superpower is that I want to be able to look in the mirror every night, even on days when I get just the, but Jesus beat out of me, I want to be able to say, I tried really hard, I pushed the agenda, I made the world a better place, not just for me selfishly or my family, but that I somehow restored justice to the world. I somehow injected a sense of broader morality and community into the world because that is what is so sorely lacking. So even if I made a ton of money, and don't feel sorry for me, I'm fine financially, and I think a lot gets made of that, but I would never have been happy had I pursued my career in business because it wouldn't have been meaningful to me because it wouldn't have meant anything to anybody uh, in terms of solving the broader problems in our society. I was put here and I am in this position because I have this sense of justice, Mm -hmm. I have this sense of fairness and it drives me and it drives me to my core and it's just been with me for so many years that... That it's now just part of my nature. I the the reason you know people ask me every day, they come up to me, go, oh, oh, how are you doing? You must be, you know, just I feel sorry for you or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, you get it from all sides, and I, like, yeah, so um, that's the fight, that's the battle, that's the hill I chose to charge up. But the benefits of charging up that hill and fighting that fight and getting the scars that I get far outweigh any of the negatives. It's it, it is an honor to serve. I love being the mayor of the city and I feel like I am making a profound difference, not alone, I'm doing it with the community, I'm doing it with everybody who's supporting the work that all of us are doing down at City Hall and all across the area, not just you know, those of us who are government hacks, but people in the private sector, the philanthropic center, sector, people who are engaged at, at the community level, uh, the kids who are involved in their Eagle Scout projects, yep. the parents who drive them towards community service, uh, we're in this to win it together, right? Yeah. I wrote down a
1: line, and, and as I hear you describe this and, and the passion that's coming through about, about what you do day to day, um, I had made a comparison, and now as I, I look back at it, it's probably not the the right comparison, but I think the job, I'm going to say it anyway, and you can you, and sure. we'll just yeah. point out how wrong I am on this. I won't. Uh, a lot of, comp- well, I will then. Uh, the comparison between your job as the mayor and then my job as someone who runs a heritage Portland radio station. No matter what you do, somebody's getting angry with you as you do it because you're trying to do your best i found that as a programmer trying to program a modern day radio station that's got a heritage like kink It doesn't matter what I do. somebody's getting angry at me because they would rather I do it a different way. And
0: I'm assuming that probably happens to you all the time as the mayor. It's the standard by which I judge progress. If people aren't getting angry at me, I'm not pushing hard enough. I'm not pushing fast enough. And the issues that I deal with as mayor, you know, 25 years ago, I could have reliably told you that my job would be to fill the potholes, keep the public safe and keep the litter off the streets. And we still do all of those things. And I have leading initiatives in every one of those areas. But now think about all the broad societal issues that have been pushed down to the municipal level. Oh yeah. Whether it's questions about immigration, whether it's questions uh, about race, mm-hmm. uh, whether it is uh, questions about – Uh, Economic fairness and ensuring economic prosperity for everyone. I mean, the issues just keep coming at us fast and furious, and there is no quick or easy or non-controversial way to really move our society forward in a meaningful way. I want to be respectful of the fact that some of these conversations, particularly conversation around race, is a really thorny, emotional, and difficult conversation for some in our community, but it's one we've got to have. And so my leadership role, uh, isn't to avoid that conflict or seek to be everybody's best friend. If if I come out of this office and everybody says, oh, yeah, I really like Ted, he's a great guy, he's fabulous, and they forget me two years later, I didn't do my job. I came here uh, with uh, a very definite thought in my head that I did not come here to be an incremental mayor, I did not come here to be a seat warmer, and I didn't come here to not move forward on some of these issues, no matter how complicated, how complex or in some cases, how controversial these issues are. We need Somebody needs to start the conversation. Somebody needs to bring everybody together to the table and at least begin that conversation. And I, I hope on a whole host of fronts, uh, people see that I am doing that. I,
1: I can't remember if it was a recent article I read or maybe one from early on in your in your tenure in the Oregonian, I think you described yourself as a transitional mayor in the yep. sense that the city is growing at such a rate right now that there's a lot of decisions that need to be made almost instantly because of this explosion of growth. Do you still describe yourself as
0: I do transitional? I do. And the, you know, the, the, the overarching concern that people express to me it doesn't matter what the issue is, whether it's trash that people see on the side of the road Uh, whether it's the increased number of homeless people they're seeing or people with addictions or people who are left out of the economic prosperity that we're seeing in our community or whether it's more congestion or taller buildings, the one theme that unifies all of those issues is change, radical, traumatic, quick change. Um, As you noted right at the beginning of this broadcast, uh, I was born and raised in this city. Mm -hmm. I still remember law graphs In the Willamette River, I remember when there were Fortune 500 companies, a few of them, all of them in the natural resources industry, that dominated our economy in this state. And uh, it was less congested, it was less crowded, it was less diverse. And I would even go so far as to say, less interesting as a community. We are now a global community, whether we like it or not. People have discovered Portland, Oregon. They're coming from all over the country and all over the world. Our economy is diversified. Technology reigns here, innovation reigns here, um, and we can't put that proverbial genie back in the proverbial bottle. Change is with us. So my job is to take us from that small-ish city feel that we had, Uh, some would even say we were a large high school Mm -hmm. in some regard, and transition us into a future where we are a big, where we are a complex, where we are a diverse, where, the, where we are an economically prosperous city in and of our own right, and right up there on the global stage. And for a lot of people, the pace of change has been too fast, and there's mourning for what we are leaving behind as we move into a larger scale. And so when I say I'm a transitional mayor, my job is to help us smooth that past. Yes, we're going to grow. Yes, our population will continue to grow. Yes, we are going to have big city problems like trash along the road that we have an obligation to mitigate. But I don't want us to lose sight of the things that we love about this community. And the things we love about this community, I hope don't just include the buildings and such, it's that sense of community we all had, and that sense of civility, and that sense of can-do spirit that I think has been the hallmark of Oregon and Portland in particular for generations, and this idea that we should not simply adopt the attitudes and the divisiveness and the lack of civility that we're seeing in Washington, D.C. Let's do it our way yeah, we're going to change, we're going to evolve, we're going to innovate, but let's do it in the Portland way, and let's be inclusive, let's be thoughtful, let's be rational, let's be pragmatic, and think to the long term about the legacy we want to leave for future generations. How do
1: you, I know on the first day you were in office, you you rode your bike to work. Do you continue to do
0: that? Yes, I do. I love riding my bike. In fact, uh, I have two of them. I have what I call my winter bike, and I have my summer bike. And my summer bike is lighter and faster, and I go farther. My winter bike is heavier, and it has big old fenders on it, and it keeps me dry. But um, being healthy, being fit is extremely important to me. And it's not just to maintain my obvious Charles Atlas body, which I'm sure you couldn't have missed. Right, right? yeah, yeah. Um, It's for my mental health. And I tell people this all the time. Stress kills. Mm-hmm. If for no other reason, I tell people, you know, if you don't like you know, being healthy and you don't like being athletic, do it for your just your mental sanity. Right. Uh, and so I do it. I love to end my day. I, you know, I'll, I'll, you know I, I live up on the hill behind us here. I'll bomb up to Girl. I'll go up through Washington Park. I always take the long way home. I try mm-hmm. to take about an hour riding home, and it's mostly uphill. Um, and it's a great way to sort of distance myself from the, the trials and tribulations of the day, if you will, and transition into my other role, which is husband and dad. Yeah. And when I come in, uh, my wife has made it very, very clear to me. She does not want the stink of my job to be on me when I meet her and meet my daughter. Uh, she expects me to be focused on them and being be part of the family, not come in still stressed out, flustered, angry, whatever the, the emotion that, of the day. that ride will do it be. for you. That absolutely. ride home will do it. Yep. It's, it's liberating. Yeah. It's absolutely liberating. How do you start your morning to, to kind of prepare for the day? Because that's part of that morning family routine, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I get up really early. So five to seven is workout time. My daughter has to be at school by eight. So, um, you know, t- today is a, a fairly... Um, Typical day. Uh, My wife happens to be traveling today, so Mm -hmm. I got up at 5 a.m., and I went swimming, and I lifted weights for a few minutes. I came home. My daughter and I had breakfast today, and I drove her to school, and then I came, and I got in time for my first meeting at 8 a.m. So uh, if if I don't work out in the morning, it's probably not going to happen. Right. I love the fact that you're not counting the biking that
1: you often do home as part of your workout. Because me, being the guy that I am, I'm like, eh, I'm going to ride my bike. I'm
0: good. I do it for fun. I, You know, I, I really enjoy it. And, you know, I, I realize there's there's a lot of people who don't lo- have that luxury. They don't live on a street where it's safe to be able sure. to do that. Um, so I... I I, I want to acknowledge that, that that I am uh, fortunate enough that, that I can actually do that, and I know there's a lot of people who'd like to do it who just can't for whatever reason. But for, for me, it's just really important. Um, did I read correctly in 2002-ish you scaled Mount Everest or thereabouts? I did. I did. Um, in uh, 2001, I mm-hmm. went to Mount Everest, and that was in conjunction with a research expedition that was being done by a Seattle operation. And they were taking people along who were interested in seeing what it's like to climb up to 8,000 meters, which is about 27,000 feet. Now, I'd done a lot of climbing. I'd I'd been part of Portland Mountain Rescue's vertical rescue team for for many years in Portland. I'd climbed uh, in the North Cascades, the Andes, and elsewhere for a long time. But I wanted to see the Himalaya. And so I, I took this trip and I, I went in 2001 and I made it up to, you know, I think the highest we got was maybe 27-ish thousand feet, somewhere in there. But I felt really good and I was passing people who three weeks later or a month later would go on to summit Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. I said, I can do that. I want to do that. Plus, I'd already paid for all the equipment. Right. So I went back the next year and I summited on the other side of the mountain, the south side of the mountain. And it was very, very difficult. I won't I won't lie to you, it wasn't easy. Yeah. But it was really fulfilling. And then I got cocky and stupid, and I went back in 2003 and tried a more obscure route on the north side and just got my head handed to me. I, I still remember my climbing partner and I were huddled under what's called the mushroom rock, which is about 28,500 feet. The weather's deteriorating, it's getting windy, we're freezing to death. And uh, I remind you at this time, I was young and single and very stupid, and we made a terrible, tragic mistake. We started talking about meeting girls and having steak back in Kathmandu. Right. And that was the end of the expedition right there. We were cooked. We were done. And so we headed back down the hill. But um, I love that part of the world. And, And even for people who don't climb, get to Nepal someday. Uh, just the Solo Kumbu Valley, the, the people, the culture, uh, the traditions they have there, it's, it's an extraordinary way of life. And by the way, they have no automobiles. There's about 300 miles of trails, mm-hmm. and people carry everything they need on their backs. There's no automobile. And so the villages all front and all the tea houses front onto this trail, and everybody's very social, and it's quiet, and it's beautiful, and it's in one of the, the most scenic places on this planet. And uh, people should put that on their bucket list. It's it's a great trip.
1: Uh, in respect of your time, Mayor. Um, one final question related to this: you, You've scaled the, the tallest mountain on Earth. Where do you go hiking here in the Portland area? Oh, there's
0: there's so many good places. Uh, the Columbia River Gorge is full of hikes that are easily accessible. You know, my father was a uh, voracious hiker. He hiked every trail that exists in the Columbia River Gorge, and I suspect some that don't exist as well. Uh, I personally like a lot of the, the trails on the Oregon coast. And mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time there. But um, yeah, I, I just tell people, go into uh, the Columbia River Gorge and pick a trail, any trail. And now they're opening up more and more of them after the fire. So there, there's still a lot of really good uh, trail hikes up there. Uh, Munra Point right now has a lot of snow. Mm-hmm. And so if you've never seen it with snow, I really encourage people to take a look. And it's, it's a stunning place. Stunning place. Well, I, I'm uh, appreciative. I've learned a lot about you today. Did, did I miss anything?
1: Probably. Probably. <laughs> we'll have you back for part two one day. I'd love that. Thank Perfect. you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast... Be sure to check out kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution. Serving our community since 1950. Talking Trash, a Green Tips podcast, is a chance for me to jump into the world of sustainability by talking to people in business, government, and nonprofits. Hi, I'm Peggy Lapointe. You can find weekly episodes every Tuesday at kink.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts.